0: Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that, but here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry, you have a knowledgeable guide along the way, a family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers.
1: Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. Today, we're here again with Maria Curran, and we're going to talk about the role of a child therapist in divorce court. So today we're back with Maria Curran, who is the principal and owner of a wonderful therapeutic center called Center for Creativity and Healing. And thank you for coming back today. Thank you for having me again. So we've talked before about your more traditional role as a therapist for children and families. But today I wanted you to talk to us about a role that I think is beginning to take a lot more of your time which is the role that you have with custody cases in court. So this is a little bit different. So let's talk about that. Explain how it is that you can be involved in a court case that's determining the custody of a child or children as a licensed therapist.
2: Well, that can happen in three different ways. The first would be I'm just... The child's therapist, I have literally had cases where I started working with a child and the parents were together and there was no plan for separation or divorce on the horizon. And then mm-hmm. a year later, it evolves into that. And so now I'm I'm involved in a case where the parents are separating and one or both parents may feel like I have something relevant to offer when they go to court. So that's, that's sort of, we call that kind of backing into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the second way would be if the court orders therapy. They may not specify the therapist, but they determine that therapy or therapeutic intervention is necessary. And so I may get a call from parents. Sometimes the call comes from the attorneys asking if I would be willing to provide the court-ordered intervention. And then the third way is um, sometimes the judge may specifically appoint me to do therapy. Sometimes it's child therapy, sometimes it's family therapy, particularly if there's a resist-refuse dynamic going on and the court feels that there needs to be therapeutically guided reunification or reintegration therapy. So
1: if a child was ordered to therapy, which is not really the child being ordered, if the parents were ordered to cooperate in taking a child to therapy, what would those typically what would those kinds of situations typically be where a court would say,
2: you take this child to therapy? I think when there's concern about how the parents are managing the child's adjustment issues, in my experience, if one or both parents are reporting that the child is acting out or appears Depressed or significantly anxious about what's happening in the family. So typically there have been concerns brought forth by one parent or both parents. There's often some concern about parenting styles and differences. And so, you know, part of that work again often involves trying to help coach the parents to be able to better meet their child's needs or to understand better sort of the child's experience.
1: Now, you talked about um, resisting. For the people that maybe aren't familiar with the terminology that we use, explain what what that is happening, the reunification type therapy.
2: So the resist-refuse dynamic is in relation to spending time with a parent. So typically there's some sort of parenting time schedule that's developed preferably very early on. And sometimes if there are difficulties in co-parenting or difficulties between a child and a parent, the child may begin to resist going to spend time with one of the parents. And so that can then become a challenge in how the parents address that, whether they're able to work together or not, as the case may be. Um, can actually exacerbate or escalate the problem. In my experience, and I think my colleagues who do this kind of work would agree with me, early intervention is better. The longer the situation goes on um, with a breach in contact, the harder it becomes then to reunify or reintegrate that parent-child relationship back into the flow. So
1: in these roles, talk about how this is different when you're operating within, not the original one where you were the child's therapist and you get kind of sucked in, possibly. But when you didn't start out organically having, this was not a child being brought to you by two concerned parents or a concerned parent. Explain when it's mandated by the court somehow how it's different or if it's different from your traditional therapies.
2: So in my practice, if there is court-ordered therapy or I am court-appointed to do therapy, in either case, I create what's called an addendum to informed consent that I require both parties to sign, both parents. And it references the specifics of the court order in relation to therapy. So for instance, if the order says that um, both parties will follow Maria Curran's therapeutic recommendations for the family r- regarding contact and, and visitation time. Um, they sign an addendum that says they have read and understood the court order. And my addendums typically if if we're working on a resist-refuse dynamic, I have very specific goals that we're that I s- state we're likely to address some or all of these goals. I'm very clear about how I work with the attorneys that um, in in that instance, I don't allow attorneys to contact me individually. I may reach out to an attorney individually if I have questions or concerns, but in order to preserve my neutrality, I prefer for most conversations to go three ways so that, that there's no concern about alliance or bias on my part usually the order stipulates how therapy is to be paid for. So I want everybody to acknowledge this is how we're doing it. And I even set up payment a little differently for those situations, because I don't want money to become another part of the conflict that I'm dealing with on top of, of everything else. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's, it's probably a three page document that is an addition to all of the typical paperwork that's done. It also talks about records Mm-hmm. And how information is shared, um including emails that you know, I'm not guaranteeing uh, confidentiality of emails. So if one parent feels the need to communicate with me and and we typically model the open communication of copying one parent mm-hmm. and the other parent whenever we're discussing concerns. Um, so again, we're trying to teach, you know that that open communication. So so there are some very specific, Documents or or information in those documents that I want parents to understand. It also includes the the very real possibility that I may be asked to make a report to the court because it is either court-ordered therapy or, well, in either case, it'd be court-ordered therapy. Right. And so I like to, to have all of that understood up front. And that document gets sent to them. We will send it to the attorney's. If parents so request and we encourage them to share it with their attorneys and then they have an opportunity in that very first meeting to ask any questions that they may have about the documents. Although most people, I think it's pretty straightforward. But we just want to be really clear. This is different. I mean, typically when people come for therapy, they know they're going to have privacy and confidentiality. But if the court is mandating the therapy, typically the court at some point wants a progress report. And that may be a written report. It may be in the form of testimony or some sort of um, judicial conference. It may be reporting back to a parent coordinator or a guardian ad litem. Um, Again, would depend on the specifics in the order. If it's not, let's say it's, it's court-ordered child therapy, wouldn't do the, the full three-page document, but I still do a briefer addendum that references the order, any specifics in the order about therapy in relation to my work, so that we've got full acknowledgement that they, parents understand this situation is going to be a little different than typical therapy.
1: Because in this situation, you are most certainly going to be compelled to discuss Correct. What you've observed and what you've learned, and not just of the child, but of the parents as you're interacting with them.
2: Exactly. And so I want to be really upfront about that, make sure that they are clear on that so that if if and when that time comes, and I would say it's very rare that it doesn't, there's no surprise that I'm being asked to share information, including any concerns that I may have, too, or, or observations of interactions to the court so that that they can use that as they best see fit in decision making.
1: So when you end up backing in to court involvement, talk about that and how that affects your relationship with your patient, if it does, and sort of how you end up responding. And I'm sure it's different for every different situation, but that's a, a completely different situation. It is the yeah. knowing when you start the thing. Right. I'm going to be telling the court.
2: Yes, because the other thing I should say about that that first scenario too is that depending on the age of the child if if the child is an adolescent, I typically will make sure the adolescent understands that I am at some point probably going to have to give a progress report to the court because this is court ordered. Um, work. And so we can talk about if you have concerns about what I might share and how I might share that. And, and I try to do everything I can to preserve as much privacy, but still give the information to the court that, that they need. But I like to be upfront with older kid children about that because they're, they usually have some awareness of what's going on. In the other scenario where it's, I sort of get backed into it. When I do my general spiel about confidentiality, if I know the parents are going through separation or divorce, I go ahead and mention that exception of being ordered by a judge to share information as part of my exceptions to confidentiality. So I plan a little seed there just in case, and then I usually say something like, but I don't think that's going to happen, Because I hope that it isn't. Mm -hmm. If it does, if I receive a subpoena (laughs) from an attorney requesting my appearance at a hearing, if the child is 12 or older, one of the things I will do is discuss with the child about the fact that I've been asked to share some information with the judge. How do you feel about that? Because if the child feels very strongly that they do not want me to do that, I'm going to make sure I communicate that that's important to me it's important to my relationship with the child sometimes children want me to share their thoughts and feelings with the court that's important for them to be heard um, and if that's the case we'll talk about what are you comfortable with me saying or what's important to you that i convey and i should say too that sharing what the child wants isn't necessary it won't necessarily jive with what i think is in the child's best interest in terms of relationships. But I will certainly share both if asked to do so. But usually, what I try to do is if I get the subpoena and I have no idea this is coming, I'm going to contact the attorney and say, you know, what is it that you're hoping I can contribute to this process? Because sometimes what the attorney thinks that I know or, or have um, the ability to do is incorrect. And so if that's the case, um, you know, maybe the parent thinks that I know things I don't know, that may end it. They may release me from the subpoena um, after that conversation. Sometimes they are pretty adamant, yes, I think you're, this information is important, in which case I may offer a treatment summary. Can I provide that in lieu of further disclosure? Sometimes that's acceptable. Sometimes they're adamant that, no, nope, we really feel like we, you know, we need you to come. If I feel like my contribution is potentially harmful to my client, who is the child, doesn't matter who's paying me, it's the child, I may file a motion to quash, and I have done that before, when I felt like it was going to be detrimental to my client if I'm required to disclose information. And so if I object to the subpoena, then it becomes up to the judge to determine If I think the term is if there's probative value, (laughs) something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And if the judge orders me to testify, then I have no choice. I mean, even ethically. So legal, in the end, is going to trump ethical. But I have an ethical obligation to voice my objection or concerns if, in fact, I have them. Again, if, if the child wants me to testify and I don't feel that it's going to be detrimental to the child, then I show up at the date and time that I'm ordered to do so.
1: So let's talk about children and testifying for a moment. And this isn't necessarily something that you're involved in, in the sense that you're you're not calling children to the stand. It, it's more with me. But there is a, a common misperception out there that there's a, a certain age that a child has to be, and when they've reached this golden age, they can tell the judge where they're, they can determine whom they want to live with. And, you know, I've corrected it before to say no, <laughs> that the law is really that the court will listen to a child's wishes and preference if it is presented as evidence, but they will take it into context with all of the rest of the evidence that's presented and that they will weight the child's statements. And a lot of things that they will look at is maturity, age, how well they can honestly express themselves. But they really look to the maturity more so than a set age. But I have parents consistently tell me. That, you know, their child wants to talk to a judge or just call call their child. So talk to me a little bit from being a therapist who works with children and adolescents about your take on involving children
2: directly in a court process. So in full disclosure, I am opposed to that. I think that once a child gets on the witness stand and testifies that you can't ever take that back. And if they are testifying about a parent and issues that they have with that parent, it's going to alter the relationship. And, And I can't recall a single conversation I've had with an adult client or an adult in general whose parents went through a difficult divorce and where they were... Brought into court and testified that didn't feel like they wish they had not been involved in that. Mm-hmm. I don't think children are capable, even mature teenagers, of truly understanding the long term impact of taking a witness stand. If they're going to talk to a judge, my preference is that they do it in chambers less formally. I think that's a lot less traumatic for kids, but I also think it, it, lessens the potential for long-term damage to the relationship. I think there are other ways to have a a child's voice be heard. For instance, having the therapist or even engaging someone. So I mentioned earlier that I think that as a child specialist, I, I have even been court appointed as a child specialist. And we tend to think of child specialist in the collaborative role where nobody's going to court. Mm-hmm. But if I'm not working in a collaborate within the collaborative agreement, I can be hired as a child specialist specifically for the purpose of trying to interview the child, looking at the dynamics and being able to help the court understand the child's desires without the child actually having to do that. And I think that's an, another alternative that can provide the information without putting the child in a position of being questioned about what they like or don't like about parents and, and you know, potentially impacting the relationship long term. As an attorney,
1: I've often turned it around with a question and said, well, if you believe that the child's opinion is going to, you know, turn this case, is going to turn this judge's head one way or the other. You know, have we considered whether or not the child is strong enough to sit down with both of the parents and a therapist and express that same position? Right. Because one would think that if it was so earth-shattering that it's going to persuade a complete stranger, that it might be earth-shattering enough to persuade the other parent who actually has a relationship with the child um, about what the child's needs are. But if somebody is going to be called, is that something that you can help the child prepare for if you know it's inevitable or there's
2: been some sort of a, a suggestion that this child is going to be asked to speak to a judge? Yes. And in fact, if if I am working with a child and I, I am told that that's going to happen I do talk with a child about well what do you know about that if you've ever been in a courtroom and I tell them what it's like I, I used to actually when I was in graduate school in Augusta I worked for the Child Advocacy Center and one of my roles there was as child advocate And one of the things I did was prepare, help prepare children who were going to have to go to court and testify. So I have a little experience background in that. And I think it's important for them to understand what that situation is like. We may even talk about where do people sit and am I going to have to talk about my mom with her there, yes, she'll probably be sitting right across from where you are. I mean, these are things that that they need to be prepared for. I've seen kids testify. I know judges try very hard to be gentle and and attorneys tend to to do that as well, but it's still a really difficult position to put a child in. And yes, my preference would be far more bent towards why don't we sit down with mom and dad, and even even having the attorneys there without a judge, not being in the courtroom, and let's talk about what you want or what you need? Because again, I agree with you. If a child can can get on a stand and do that with a judge, why can't we do that in my office, in the therapist's office, and and make it a neutral space and you know where the child feels like they have some neutral support? So if this is getting overwhelming, hey, we can just stop, take a break. I just think that's a much healthier way to do it.
1: I personally am am opposed to it as well, but I often tell people an antidote of another attorney that I once worked with who was just expressing the divorce and separation scenario of her own parents. And she was talking about having to go to court and testify. And this was not in North Carolina. But what struck me is that she had... A vivid, just seared in her memory experience where she literally could recall what shoes she was wearing, what socks she was wearing, what perfume she was wearing, the smell of the courtroom, she remembered what everyone in the room was wearing. That's a really strong memory, if you can. And I don't even know that she knew the impact it had on me, that she could literally describe, you know, the the color polka dots on the judge's tie. But that's how much of an impression being forced into that experience had on her. And, you know, that was just an antidotal conversation with a corporate lawyer. You know, he doesn't even practice divorce law, just talking about, you know, why she would never do divorce law. But I think that people forget that you talk about not being able to take back what they say, but just being put in that position, regardless of what they say one way or the other, is something
2: they're never going to forget. And in addition to that, there's going to be a record of it Mm -hmm. forever, and it's a public record. And that's something to consider as well. Sometimes children are angry initially and hurt. And so they may feel in that moment, I don't want to be with this parent. It does not mean they're going to feel that way three months from now or six months from now or a year from now. And they may have a lot of regret about things that they said. And, And that's such a public forum. The other thing to consider is a child may be being influenced by a parent and, and that influence can range. Again, you know, sometimes when parents overshare and they treat their child more like a confidant, they may be sharing things with the child that encourage the child to form a very negative opinion of the other parent, but they may not be accurate. Mm-hmm. And even, even if, even then, if that's a time limited thing and, and the parent works through their issues, well, now you've got a child who may now have a big rift with the other parent. That should never have happened.
1: Well, we've talked about ways that you could be sort of ordered into the process. But just for a moment, let's talk about the other role that you play, because it still can be a, a legal action involving attorneys if you're doing collaborative work. You talked about cooperative work. You may not have a judge involved in it, but you definitely have the legal process and you have attorneys involved in it. Right. So talk about how you end up in the legal process,
2: even if it's not in the courtroom. So I have worked with collaborative cases, both as a child specialist and as a therapist involved with the family. I mean, my preference is to be as collaborative as possible, period. I think it's a great thing to model. And I think it's an easier way to work. And it's a healthier way to work. You have a much better chance of solving problems if everybody is communicating openly and working towards that resolution. So that's always my preference.
1: And I always tell people that collaborative doesn't mean it's conflict-free.
2: No, it does not. (laughs) It's often
1: very strong opinions and very difficult issues to overcome. It simply means that everyone is committed to the process of reaching a solution without a judge doing it for them. That is correct.
2: But it's not necessarily easy work. Also correct. I think, um, in fact, the first collaborative case I got involved in was really tricky, and there was already a resist-refuse dynamic going on. And so, you know, I came into it um, much in the way I might come into a, a case where I'm court appointed, same dynamics, with the exception of having two attorneys and, and two parents who have committed to trying to work together to resolve the process where sometimes when I'm court appointed, one party really wants to solve the problem, the other party may not be as invested in solving the problem for a variety of reasons. And so that creates um, some different challenges, especially if their legal advocate is, um, I mean, I know that's a fine line for attorneys and in, in you have to provide diligent representation for your client, um, but some of your um, peers and colleagues are, are, are better at holding that and also holding the value of resolving the problems. And this is in the best interest of everyone. Some maybe not so much. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a trick. It, it is. It is a trick. a trick. I mean, much in the same way, it is a trick for me to remain as a neutral when I've got um, parents who are really in conflict with each other. If, if I come away from a situation where both parents feel like I'm a neutral, then I'm doing something right. But it's, it is hard work. Mm-hmm. There's there's no doubt about it. But so in the collaborative agreement, even if we have a lot of conflict, at least we we've all agreed we're going to try to work together to solve it. And that is a huge help.
1: I always like it when both parents are telling the attorneys that the uh, therapist likes the other one better. <laughs> then we know that you're doing it right because they're both complaining about you. Um And it just means, great, she's being totally neutral because they both think they're losing. But the difference when you're doing the collaborative role, though, is it is much more open disclosure. So it's not your confidence to the child is a little bit different because you are it is expected that you are going to be making opinions and making assertions to both attorneys and the parents to help achieve the best plan for this child. And so it it definitely involves a little bit more of disclosures.
2: That's true. Although if I am court appointed to work, if I'm working with the resist-refuse dynamic or doing... No, re- we're talking about like the collaborative. R- right. Yeah. No, but I'm saying, but even in the other... I, part of that addendum that they sign lays out a lot of the same principles as the collaborative agreement does because I know that the best way for me to get the job done is if I'm working with everybody. I mean, and the research shows that. That's been my personal experience, but that's also what the literature says that if, if we're working together as a team and, and it's imperative that you work on that co parent dynamic. So, Regardless of which hat I'm wearing, that's that's just an important component. Um, the, I think the difference between the two is, if you come to me in a collaborative agreement and ask me to participate and help out in, in, as a child specialist, that piece has already been settled. If I'm coming in as as a court-appointed reunification therapist. I'm the one who's going to put that forth and say, this is what we're doing. If you want me to work this case, this is what we're doing. So it's easier for me if that's already been decided.
1: How disconnected do you see the the parents become from reality in court situations? Because I, I feel like the longer the court situation goes on, the more and more the parents get disconnected from the reality of their
2: child. Yeah, I think, I think it can drag on for years and years. I mean, I've literally seen that. And I, and I agree. I think that the longer you have this uncertainty of how are things going to be permanently? How, what's the schedule going to look like? How are we going to manage the relationships? That's, you're just leaving the door open for more problems. And, and you're right, more disconnect. Because I seem to sense that a lot
1: of times, the longer it goes on, I really see a lot of children at different ages but really start to pull away from their parents, both of them. That can happen. And really look for surrogates in other relationships and other dynamics. And so, you know, I'm just seeing it from an attorney part watching it. But it's really frightening to me to watch the parents continue to do battle. Mm-hmm. And watch the child sort of like literally taking a, a total turn somewhere else,
2: right? Well, so the statistics of of you know seventy five percent of kids adjusting one to two years post separation, we've got that other twenty five percent of kids who don't, and those children are at much higher risk for emotional and social problems. Um, They're at much higher risk for substance abuse, for delinquency. I mean, all the same statistics you see with other major issues hold true. Behavior correct, correct. All of that holds true for for the children of ongoing conflict and parental conflict, so Saul Rapaport, who is a, a nationally known custody evaluator and, and presents a lot at AFCC, wrote a paper a few years back where he compiled all the, the recent research on children's post-divorce adjustment. Parental conflict was number one. How the children perceive the conflict and the reasons for the conflict is another factor, you know there are also parenting styles and and if a, one parent has mental health issues that can be another factor and then the financial piece of course can can be a factor as well. but parental conflict is number one and yes, those coping mechanisms can sometimes they can be healthy and positive but oftentimes they are not. and we haven't we don't have a lot of research on the sort of long-term prognosis for children who terminate a relationship with a parent after separation or divorce. But Amy Baker did a study, or she actually wrote a book, where she interviewed adults who had been alienated from a parent. And I'm using alienation um, in a broader sense. I don't necessarily just mean where there's been... The clinical sense. Right, where there's concern that it, a parent deliberately disengaged that relationship. So she she talked to adults who... Had, had a disconnected relationship with one of their parents and found that half of those adults currently were disconnected from their own children. So it's the cycle repeats itself much like we see with domestic violence and substance abuse. And it makes total sense if you think about it, because children learn primarily about relationships from their family of origin. So if their family of origin remains fractured and in conflict, that becomes their norm. So they're far more likely to grow up and repeat that cycle. This makes me back into my public service announcement for premarital counseling is
1: (laughs) really check into your spouse's family, (laughs)
2: prospective spouse's family.
1: Just look carefully at your own and theirs.
2: I I love it when people contact me and and ask if, well, you know, they'll see from my website, oh, I see you do co-parenting and all that stuff. But do you do do marriage counseling? I'm like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Come see me before you're, you know, you've blown it all up. And better still, when you're, you're in. In, in either in early stages or you're you're looking at making that kind of long-term commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say that is the exception for me and not the rule
1: right because these are dynamics that we're seeing more and more as divorce became more and more prevalent that people that are marrying now experience some you know sort of break in their their you know core family unit at some point. And so really making sure you're dealing with those things and have dealt with them before you embark on your own as is- Maybe going to prevent you from having so many clients. I probably shouldn't say that, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> listen, it would be a problem. I would love to have. Yeah. I, th- I think it's. I mean, the skills that you need to navigate life are really similar to the skills you need to navigate a long-term relationship. It's hard work, you know. We we still get sort of the the myth thrown out in in media that you know there's a happily ever after. And then that's the end of the story, right? Everybody rides off into the sunset (laughs) and nothing could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. It takes work and, and ongoing work and marriage has up and downs, ups and downs. But again, we primarily what we learn about families and marriage and relationship happens in our family of origin so if if your sort of normative experiences conflict 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 and you know and then if things get bad you just leave the relationship that becomes your mo and that's how you handle a problem in any relationship so it, it's i can't tell you how often when i am asked to help with a reunification or reintegration one or sometimes both parents experienced separation or disconnect from a parent growing up as well Mm -hmm. and sometimes they don't even see that they're repeating that cycle because we do what comes naturally we we are drawn to the familiar not necessarily what we like that's not the same thing but we're drawn to the familiar it's it's how the the child who grows up in an alcoholic home then ends up marrying an alcoholic and they're surprised how could i do that Well, that was your norm. That was your comfort zone. So it does take a lot of awareness and work to decide to reset that dynamic.
1: Well, if people would like to find you to explore these topics more or perhaps they have a high conflict custody case or maybe you've been court appointed for their case where would they find information about you and how to contact you
2: and they can go to my website at the center for creativity and Healing.com, or they can call the office at 704-523-5567
1: thank you so much and i hope to have you back again
2: thanks for having me
1: So there you have it, another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here, so I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully it is full of helpful people, valuable resources, and sound advice, if you know where to look. See you next time.
0: The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.